Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 96, the Book of Matthew, the end of our study of the Book of Matthew. Well, today we shall conclude what amounts to a two-year study of the Gospel of Matthew. And although there are some additional facts and events surrounding Christ's death, uh, resurrection is far and away the central matter of Matthew chapter 28, as it ought to be. So, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, please. Matthew chapter 28. It's just a short chapter. I'm going to read it all. Matthew chapter 28. After Shabbat, as the next day was dawning, Miriam of Magdala and the other Miriam went to see the grave. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of Adonai came down from heaven, rolled away the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so terrified at him, they trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Yeshua who was executed on the stake. He's not here because he's been raised, just as he said. Come, look at the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the Talmudim, the disciples, he's been raised from the dead. And now he's going to the Galil, the Galilee, ahead of you. You will see him there. Now I've told you. So they left the tomb quickly, frightened, yet filled with joy. And they ran to give the news to his disciples, and suddenly Yeshua met them and said, Shalom! And they came up and took hold of his feet as they fell down in front of him. Then Yeshua said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to the Galilee, and they will see me there. And as they were going, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the head priest everything that had happened. Then they met with the elders, and after discussing the matter, they gave the soldiers a sizable sum of money and said to them, tell people his disciples came during the night and stole his body while we were sleeping. If the governor hears of it, we'll put things right with him and keep you from getting in trouble. The soldiers took the money and did as they were told, and this story has been spread about by Judeans till this very day. So the eleven disciples went to the hill in the Galilee where Yeshua had told them to go, and when they saw him, they prostrated themselves before him, but some hesitated. Yeshua came and talked with them, and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make people from all nations into disciples, immersing them into the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Racha Kodesh, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything, I have commanded you, and remember, I will be with you always, yes, even until the end of the age. Now, before we start studying these inspired words, I must first give you some information about which most Bible students aren't aware. Nearly every modern, and even earlier, Christian scholar I've researched begins with a similar premise that all four gospel accounts 
are to be divided into pre and post Easter events and narratives and instructions. And that what happened before Jesus' death and resurrection matters considerably less than what happened afterward. Essentially, the mindset is that his resurrection changed circumstances so greatly that whatever he said and taught prior to his crucifixion must not be given as much weight nor his instructions be understood as something that Christians are necessarily bound to as to what he said after he arose. Now further, that whatever part of his speech, his life, his behavior is overtly Jewish in its tone and its flavor is to be disregarded as not for members of the Christian church since although he died a Jew, he was no longer a Jew when he arose and then afterward ascended to heaven. Now this premise is necessary, you see, because Christianity is as admitted by church authorities since the fourth century, not a religion for Jews, but rather only for Gentiles. So to sum it up, the underlying assumption of the institutional church as regards his resurrection is that it opened a new chapter that essentially greatly modified, even abolished, most of what came before it up to and including what Christ did and said. Now this is so important to be aware of that I'm going to say it again in different terms. The mindset is that it's not only the relevance of the Old Testament and its teachings and commands that are said to not be for Christians, it is that the relevance of much of Yeshua's pre-crucifixion and resurrection instructions have largely been superseded. This is why various Bible scholars over the past couple of centuries confess that what we have today in Christianity is not actually a church of Christ, rather it's the church of Paul. Now, part of the reason that this happened is the realization that several of Yeshua's teachings, and especially the Sermon on the Mount, are problematic for a Gentiles-only brand of Christianity, and we've discussed several of these matters over the past two years. So the companion premise is that because of the resurrection, Paul reinterpreted those earlier teachings of Jesus that happened before his crucifixion. Now, I can't accept this traditional position, and it has much to do with why Seed of Abraham Ministries exists in the first place. I hope, after our deep dive into the book of Matthew, that I also hope was preceded by your study of... Uh, the Torah with me, that the age-old position of the church dividing the relevance of Christ's teachings into pre- and post-Easter periods finally becomes unacceptable for you as well.
I also want to make it clear, my goal has never been to create an anti-church or anti-cross mentality. Rather, it is my hope that some hopelessly inappropriate doctrines that have crept into our faith over the centuries can be exposed to the light of day, repented over, rooted out, before the end comes and our Lord returns. Okay, let's move on. The opening words of chapter 28 tell us when the events of the next few verses occurred. It was on the first day of the week, what the Western world calls Sunday. Now, because the complete Jewish Bible is what is known as a dynamic translation, whereby in some cases the alleged literal meaning substitutes for the literal words, then the words first day of the week are at the author's discretion not included. Nonetheless, the day after the weekly Sabbath is the first day of the week, and we find that bit of information expressed in virtually all other English Bible versions. Matthew 28.1 Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, as began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. That's the NAS version. Now towards dawn is a general term that nicely equates to the common English term at sunrise. Biblically and is understood and practiced by Jews, Shabbat therefore had ended several hours earlier at the previous sunset. And so at that point, the day advanced from the seventh day to the first day of the week. Miriam of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, and the woman called the other Miriam, the one in the previous chapter identified as the mother of Jacob and Joseph, who may or may not have been the mother of Yeshua, went while it was still dark to visit the tomb where the wealthy disciple Joseph of Ramataim had placed Christ's corpse. Now, these same two women were, among other Jews, present at the site of the crucifixion as Jesus hung dying upon the cross. Now, that it was two women that are mentioned only adds to the historic evidence that this account is true, as the world in that era was a network of male-dominated societies, and especially the Hebrew faith placed men in the leading roles. So, the heavy involvement and mention of women in, it, in this is actually a bit of a surprise. Now, although as Daniel J. Harrington notes in his research on ancient Judaism, it was the custom at that time for family and friends to keep watch over the tomb of a loved one for three days. Guess why? To be sure that the person entombed wasn't actually still alive, but had accidentally been judged as dead. Just as there had been an earthquake at the moment of Yeshua giving up his spirit and succumbing to the horrible execution experience of the Roman death stake, so now another earthquake occurs around the time of the women's arrival at the tomb. 
Matthew explains that the earthquake was directly connected with a representative of God, an angel, arriving on scene, whereby the rock closing the opening to the tomb was rolled away, exposing the entrance. The angel, quite visible, no doubt, frightening in appearance, sat upon the stone that had been moved to the side. Now, saying that the angel's appearance was like lightning must be referring to the suddenness of it rather than a description of what he looked like. What he looked like was summed up with the words, his clothes were white as snow. Now, the Gospel of Mark, however, tells a somewhat different version of these same happenings, starting in Mark 16.1. When Shabbat was over, Miriam of Magdala, Miriam the mother of Jacob, and Shlomit brought spices in order to go and anoint Yeshua. Very early the next day, just after sunrise, they went to the tomb. They were asking each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? And then they looked up and they saw that the stone, even though it was huge, had been rolled back already. And on entering the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right. And they were dumbfounded. So since neither Matthew nor Mark were eyewitnesses, and both were writing at least 30 years after the fact, then clearly they were getting their information from different sources. And that's kind of the nature of all the synoptic gospels. In Mark, no earthquake is mentioned. Three women, and not two, went to the tomb. There is no direct explanation for how the tomb had been opened, and there was a young man dressed in all white sitting not outside, but inside the tomb, next to where Yeshua had been laid. We're left to decide who this young man is. And it's nearly universally agreed that this young man was an angel. I'm not so sure. Why wouldn't Mark simply say angel, if that's the case? Well, when we read a little bit more of Mark, my suspicion increases that the young man was not an angel. As we continue starting in verse 6 of Mark 16, 16, excuse me. But he said, don't be so surprised. You're looking for Yeshua from Nazareth, who was executed on the stake. He has risen. He's not here. Look at the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples, especially Kepha, especially Peter, that he's going to the Galilee ahead of you. You will see him there just as he told you. Trembling but ecstatic, they went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. When Yeshua rose early Sunday, he appeared first to Miriam of Magdala, from whom he had expelled several, uh, seven rather, demons. It's that last verse that's interesting. See, it seems to me that in Mark's gospel, the intent of referring to the young man is not to an angelic being, but more likely it was to Jesus. 
Even though this young man says he's not here, he's going to the Galilee ahead of you. See, Yeshua regularly spoke of himself in the third person, especially when he talked about him being the son of man. This could explain Mark's otherwise confusing verse 9 about Christ first appearing to Mary Magdalene that kind of seems out of place. Now, my speculation is that Mark is writing about the appearance of this being, what it was to these three women, a young human male, not what his substance was or who he actually turned out to be. And if this is the case, then this differs significantly from Matthew's account. Now, I don't think we need to fret much over any of these differences. For one reason, we can't pepper the original authors with questions. So the why and the wherefore can be nothing but our guesses. Yet to pretend that there aren't differences is not intellectually honest. The precise details of the tomb opening and why the women came, even how many women were present, in Mark's version it was three, who intended to complete the funeral process of putting aromatic spices within the folds of the linen covering that envelops the dead body. This isn't crucial to the point of the story, which is the empty tomb. That's what this is about. So as we continue in Matthew, we have the mention of guards, Roman guards, that had witnessed the earthquake, the stone being rolled away, and the sudden presence of this terrifying apparition that Matthew says is an angel, saying the guards became like dead men simply means they became frozen in fear. Well, next, some of the most profound words in the entire New Testament are spoken by the angelic being. He says the women should not be afraid, no doubt referring to the nature of his own appearance, <laughs> and that he knows why they came to the tomb, and that it was to look for Yeshua, who had been crucified. He next says... Yeshua isn't there in the tomb because he's been raised, just as he prophesied. So the angel provides the reason that Jesus isn't there. That is, his body was not taken, it had come alive again. Now the angel invites the women into the tomb to see that no one was there and that they were to quickly run to tell the 11 disciples about what has happened. No doubt meaning that the 11 disciples hadn't scattered, but rather stayed as a downcast group nearby. But it also means the women knew exactly where they were. They are also to tell the disciples that Jesus is going to be in the Galilee, again, just as he had said he would prior to his death. Well, what's described is so brief, so short on details, it leaves out perhaps the most puzzling matter that we'd all like to know about, the resurrection itself. I mean, we have no information on how it happened, on what it looked like 
as it unfolded inside that tomb. Resurrection is just given as a fact and nothing more. Now, we're not really told by Matthew that Jesus arose on the first day of the week, only that the tomb opened on that day and that he was already gone. Even the prophecy of Jonah that Yeshua said he would fulfill as a sign doesn't necessarily state that he was dead for three days and nights, only like Jonah in the belly of the great fish, that he would be sequestered inside the tomb for three days and nights. Matthew 12, 38 to 40. At this, some of the Torah teachers said, Rabbi, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he replied, a wicked and adult adulterous generation asked for a sign? No. None will be given but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the depth of the earth. Similarly, Mark doesn't say that Christ arose on the third day. Luke, however, says it was on the third day that Jesus arose, meaning coming alive from the dead. In Luke 24, 7, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be executed on a stake as a criminal, but on the third day he will be raised again. So, the ambiguity of the time of Christ's revivication in Matthew and Mark is settled by Luke. Now, let's consider the timeline of events, okay? Using standard Western terminology for the days of the week, this is the usual Christian timeline. Yeshua was killed and placed into the tomb on Friday and arose on Sunday. But how can that add up to three days and three nights to fulfill the prophetic sign of Jonah? Answer, it can't. At best, it offers just a few minutes in the tomb on Friday, full day on Saturday, little bit of a day on Sunday, but no amount of spin can ever give us three nights. Friday night and Saturday night, I'm not a math major, are two nights. The solution's simple but it shakes up standard doctrine. There has to be one more day and night injected. The solution begins by returning to the fact that this was the spring festival period when three God-ordained feasts occurred in rapid succession. Passover, unleavened bread, and then first fruits. And when we view this from the only way we should, from the Hebrew-Jewish way, that must include accounting for the added feast Sabbaths that are biblically ordained for the first and for the last days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Doing that, we can reconstruct a timeline that works. Using the Hebrew model of days that changed at sunset, not at midnight, 
and using the Hebrew numbering system of days, not the Roman day numbering system that we use, then we see that Yeshua died and was entombed on the fifth day of the week. He lay there for the sixth and seventh days of the week, and he arose on the first day of a new week. I'll say it in a different way. He was placed in the tomb just before dark on the fifth day, which begins a new Hebrew day. He remained entombed for the day and the night of the sixth day, which was a festival Sabbath day, and for the day and the night of the seventh day, the weekly seventh day Sabbath, and then arose around daybreak on the first day of the new week. That gives us three days and three nights. All other formulas simply do not add up. Further, my opinion is that just as when Yeshua died, it was announced by an earthquake. So, therefore, was the moment of his resurrection announced by an earthquake. And we know this earthquake happened about daybreak. And we're going to deal with this a little more shortly. Verse 8 continues with the women dutifully obeying the angel's instructions to run and find the disciples and tell them the news. The women were shaken, badly frightened by what they had just witnessed, but they are also conflicted in emotion as they were filled with unimaginable joy because the death of their Lord had seemingly turned into an unfathomable victory. Somewhere along their way to find the 11 disciples, it wouldn't have been a very long distance, Jesus suddenly appears to them. John's gospel tells the story differently from Matthew's and Mark's, starting at John chapter 20, verse 11. But Miriam stood outside crying, and as she cried, she bent down and peered into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Yeshua had been, one at the head, one at the feet. Why are you crying? They asked her. They took my Lord, she said to them, and I don't know where they've put him. And as she said this, she turned around and saw Yeshua standing there, but she didn't know it was he. Yeshua said to her, Lady, why are you crying? Whom are you looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you're the one who carried him away, just tell me where you put him, and I'll go and get him myself. And Yeshua said to her, Miriam, and turning, she cried out to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, stop holding on to me, Yeshua said to her, because I haven't gone yet back to the Father, but go to my brothers, tell them I'm going back to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. So, in John's version, it wasn't an angel that told the women to go find the 11 disciples. It was the risen Christ. And there were two angels present. So the women weren't on their way to find the disciples when they saw Yeshua. Instead, he was suddenly standing right there next to them, just outside the tomb's entrance. Okay, which of the four gospel accounts gets the details of this event most correct? Shall we have vote? Look, I'll tell you right now, my vote would be for John's since he was nearby 
at the time as one of the original 11. It's 12, now it's 11. John would have heard this story directly from the mouths of the excited women eyewitnesses. John was the only gospel writer that was part of Christ's first followers. There's much to unpack here, but I want to begin with this. Jesus' words once again confound the co-equal Trinity doctrine theory that is a mainstay for most of Western Christianity. That is, if one claims that the New Testament tells us that God manifests himself only as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, then all three natures or persons of God are co-equal, and there is no hierarchy of authority, power, or knowledge. Listen carefully again to what Yeshua says in John verse 17. Stop holding on to me, Yeshua said there, because I haven't yet gone back to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them I'm going back to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Yeshua not only refers to my Father, but refers to him as what? My God. And by saying, my God and your God, he is putting his Father's superior God status above himself, the women, and the disciples. Now let's talk about resurrection, which to my thinking must be the fulcrum upon which all belief and Yeshua as our Lord and Savior pivots. Paul says that without Yeshua's resurrection, our faith is in vain. Yet it might surprise you to know that not all Christian denominations believe in resurrection. Some denominations don't believe in any kind of resurrection, not even of the disembodied soul. Others believe that Jesus was resurrected, but he's the only one that ever will be. Still others believe in resurrection of the soul and not the body. And this even includes the absence of possibility of bodily resurrection for Yeshua. For some of the older denominations, like the Baptists, there are splits in their resurrection beliefs that can be traced to the rise of the European Enlightenment of the 18th century. Especially as we arrive then in the mid-20th century, the idea of bodily resurrection, including of Jesus, within the various Western branches was on the wane. This is due to the modern era insistence that the Bible must agree with science, or better, it must conform with science. And from that view, scientifically speaking, since resurrection is a miracle, and since miracles cannot be reproduced and proven in a laboratory, then there can be no such things as miracles. This issue is one of a small handful that defines the basic division between what the church tends to call its liberal versus its fundamental or conservative denominations. 
Now, as I've had the pleasure of researching the array of beliefs concerning resurrection, both in documentation and over my lifetime, in talking with Christians of many denominations, it sometimes is a surprise to members of one side of the argument or the other that a different view even exists. And I assure you, there aren't just two sides to the debate. There's many. We could probably spend a lot of time on all these various views, their nuances, their sources, but it would take us down a rabbit trail. It's not appropriate for our purposes. So I'll just state to you that because I take the Bible as inspired, truthful, and literal, and that's literal in its meaning and intent when taken within the context of the culture in which it was written. Therefore, I can confidently tell you Jesus died on the cross, his dead body was placed into a tomb, and on the third day, the Father in heaven miraculously revivified him both in body and soul. This is what happened. Now, while so often this concept of resurrection is taught within the church as a new Christian innovation that is very much new and apart from the Judaism of Christ's day. In fact, that's not so at all. Such a thing was completely within the broad spectrum of Jewish theology of Yeshua's day and had been part of the Hebrew faith for centuries. Now, although just as within modern Christianity, there were and continue to be many more than one stream of thought on the matter of resurrection that various Jewish groups adhered to, Therefore, we're going to focus our attention for the next few minutes on the issue of resurrection because it reveals the mindset of the Jewish people and of first century writers of the New Testament. Now, of the several doctrinal disagreements between the Sadducees and the Pharisees was the subject of resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in it. But various groups of Pharisees variously believed in either spirit-only resurrection or in spirit and body. Therefore, the concerns of the Sadducees and the Pharisee members of the Sanhedrin that convicted Yeshua and wanted guards placed at his tomb were different. See, the Sadducees truly believed that since resurrection was not possible, then the only way that Christ's body could go missing is if his disciples took it. The Pharisees, however, had mixed motives. While they were afraid that Jesus' disciples indeed might come and steal the body, they also could not dismiss the idea that he could be resurrected. And, think about this, what would they do about a resurrected Jesus wandering around Jerusalem that would threaten their authority over the Jewish people even more than the sad remembrance of a dead and non-resurrected Jesus? See the bind they were in? Now, going back to what 
many Jewish scholars think maybe the first book of the Bible that was, that was written down is the book of Job. In Job, we read this in chapter 14, starting in verse 11. Just as water in a lake disappears, as a river shrinks and dries up, so a person lies down and doesn't arise until the sky no longer exists. It will not awaken. It won't be roused from its sleep. Oh, I wish you would hide me in Sheol. Conceal me until your anger is past. Then fix a time and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? I'll wait all the days of my life for my change to come. So from, the very, from a very early date, there was hope, at least, hope of a man being brought back to life by God after he had died. See, this is what resurrection amounts to, even if the word itself had yet to be coined. And this because much more formed thoughts about the subject hadn't yet been brought together by the time of Job. Now, much of the source of resurrection thought actually revolves around the concept of monotheism, the concept that there is only one God. Now, I need you to really give me your attention, get those thinking caps going. I hope you had a lot of caffeine, all right? Because this is a little hard, but I think it's helpful. So, in other words, if there is only one God, and God is the creator of life, and it is God who determines everything, then certainly the power of life and death and even renewed life lies within his capable hands. Logical. So monotheistic religions like Judaism, Christianity, even Islam, all believe in resurrection of one kind or another. Now, another element of this resurrection reasoning is that a human being was created as a moral unit. A moral unit. What do I mean by that? That is, our body and soul form a unit. So they can only ever be separated to a degree. It follows that in our alive state, the condition of our soul will necessarily have a profound effect on our body, and vice versa. And that resurrection necessarily then must be of body and soul together. So our basic belief in the one God is our best assurance that resurrection must be an immutable fact. Our hope in Christ then, follow me here, our hope in Christ then is not about resurrection itself, because it's an already established fact, but rather the matter becomes resurrection into what? It was therefore perhaps the resurrection into what question 
that concerned and separated Hebrew thought into various groups and sects. Now, because both Ezekiel and Jeremiah shared this view of resurrection as a given, and of humans as God-defined and created moral units of body and soul, and because of these prophets' messianic beliefs that Jesus so much relied upon to explain himself to others, then resurrection gradually, in Jewish thought, came to be seen as a central part of the eventual reality of the coming messianic kingdom, what the gospel accounts usually call the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Resurrection and the kingdom of heaven, of course, only extended, for the most part, to Israelites, and especially found its expression in Ezekiel's famous dry bones, representing scattered and dead Israelites, that come back to life, are recovered in flesh as living persons, as moral units. Daniel expressed a coming resurrection that differed slightly, perhaps, from Ezekiel's and Jeremiah's. Listen to the beginning of Daniel chapter 12. When that time comes, Michael, the great prince who champions your people, will stand up, and there will be a time of distress unparalleled between the time they became a nation and that moment. At that time, your people will be delivered, everyone whose name is found written in the book. Many of those sleeping in the dust of the earth will awaken, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and aberrance. But those who can discern will shine like the brightness of heaven's dome, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret. Seal up the book until the time of the end. Many will rush here and there as knowledge increases. Okay. So the difference is that even Jewish scholars see this prophecy as including the possibility, although not a certainty, that it might include resurrection of the dead even for some Gentiles. But Daniel's prophecy also says there will be a general uh, resurrection that will include not only the righteous, but also the wicked. Therefore, we have the beginning of the issue I spoke about a couple of minutes ago. Resurrection, okay, but resurrection into what? Daniel says, for some, it will be resurrection into everlasting life. Others, resurrection into everlasting shame and aberrance. The later Ethiopic book of Enoch, this is not a book in your Bible, so don't go looking for it in the index, builds on Daniel's concept, and he proposes that Sheol, that's the grave or the underworld of the dead, is divided into four chambers. Two that house the righteous dead, two that house the wicked dead. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details, but of those four classes of people who die and get divided up to live in those four different chambers, the two righteous classes plus one 
of the wicked classes, all living in their separate chambers, will be resurrected. The fourth won't be. The three resurrected classes were said to be fully body and soul, moral unit resurrections. On the other hand, the Slavonic Book of Enoch, this is another non-biblical work, assumes that all will be resurrected, but only in spirit and never in body. The Pharisees in the essence, in general, believed in resurrection of the body and the spirit. However, both saw this as applying mainly or even exclusively to Israelites. Over time, after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and when the priesthood became disbanded as a result of it, rabbis became this new driving force of theology in Judaism. And as one might expect, debates raged over who might be included in resurrection. For instance, Rabbi Eleazar HaKapar said, As all men are born and die, so they will rise again. He and other rabbis shared this view, and they placed the timing of the resurrection at the close of the Messianic era. Now, does this sound familiar to you? Because it ought to. We find this same conclusion coming from Yeshua, from Paul, and from John in the book of Revelation. Listen to Revelation 20, starting with verse 1. Next, I saw an angel coming down from heaven who had the key to the abyss with a great chain in his hand. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and changed him, uh, chained him up for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss. He locked it and sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were over. After that, he has to be set free for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and those seated on them received authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for testifying about Yeshua and proclaiming the word of God. Also those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and ruled with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is anyone who is part of the first resurrection. Over him, the second death has no power. On the contrary, they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will rule with him for the thousand years. So, when we read what Christ says, what Paul will say later, it is nothing particularly innovative within the Hebrew faith. What is new is announcing that the Messiah of the Messianic era has arrived, and his name is Yeshua of Nazareth. Well, let's return to Matthew 28. Verse 11 explains that the Roman guards that had been frozen in fear went into Jerusalem, told a senior priest what had happened. The priest met with the Pharisee leadership, and together they decided uh, the best course of action was to bribe these Roman guards 
to say that indeed what they were guarding against had come to pass. Some of Christ's disciples came and stole Jesus' body. And should this matter wind up on Pilate's desk, the Jewish religious leadership will go to defend the guards and smooth things over. Then we get verse 15 that is usually translated as we find it in the King James Version. So they took the money and did as they were taught. <coughs> and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. <clears throat> the problem with this verse is that the word Jews is not there. It doesn't say that. Okay? The proper translation from Greek to English is not Jews. It's Judeans. That is the Jewish residents of Judea. So it is the Judeans who bought into the lie told to the Roman guards, and it is they who perpetuated it. Well, you know, if the crux of the entire final chapter of Matthew's gospel is resurrection, then the crux of the final five verses must be what the church calls the Great Commission. Now, apparently, Yeshua had not only told the disciples that he would meet them up in Galilee, something they clearly had not believed would happen. But also, he told them the exact location, even though it's not documented in the Gospels. And when they saw Yeshua, they fell at his feet, they worshipped him, at least some of them did. Others held back, some probably dumbstruck with who was standing there before them, perhaps others fearful after having disowned him, if they would be welcomed back. And others, not sure what to make of the whole thing. Now, Yeshua tells them that all authority in heaven and earth is given to him. This fulfills Daniel 7.14, or at least it does to a point. I kept watching the night visions when I saw coming with the clouds of heaven someone like a son of man. And he approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. To him was given rulership, glory, <clears throat> and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Nothing in Daniel prophesies Yeshua being in charge of heaven. And since the Hebrew term Shamaim means both the universe, what's up in the sky, and the heaven where God lives, one has to wonder what's actually meant here. Can the Father really have just ceded control over heaven to Yeshua? Or is it that Yeshua has been given control over the earth and the universe? Does the opening credo, our Father in heaven, change now? Now, I'm not so sure I can answer those questions with complete conviction. However, I think the meaning is that just as Jesus has been the Father's agent on earth, so now, sitting at the Father's right hand in heaven, Jesus has returned to heaven and is his Father's agent in heaven. Peter's epistle might shed some light at least on how he understood this instruction. In Peter, 1 Peter 3.22, 
he has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Well, what comes next is Yeshua's command to take the good news of the kingdom that now includes news of his resurrection to all nations. Now, the church has historically taken this to mean that Gentiles are now added to the mix, and with a couple of hundred years, it, changed, it was changed to mean Gentiles only, Jews excluded. <clears throat> but one has to wonder, as we read the various epistles, if Christ's 11 disciples standing before him that day and the many more Jewish disciples of his that would become part of the fold over the next few years after his crucifixion really took it that way. As opposed to meaning, they should take this message to the Jewish diaspora who lived scattered among the many nations outside the Holy Land. After all, well less than 10% of all living Jews at that time lived in the Holy Land. Now, considering this strange encounter that Paul had with the risen Yeshua a few decades later, as he was sent by the Sanhedrin to hunt down Jewish followers who were indeed taking Christ's message to fellow Jews in the diaspora, and then Paul being told that he was Yeshua's choice to take the same message to Gentiles, the passage favors the likelihood that Yeshua's commission was at first misunderstood. It only became apparent after Paul's experience with Christ on the road to Damascus that worldwide evangelism of all humanity, Jews and Gentiles, that's what Yeshua had intended. Therefore, this passage fulfills one of the oldest promises of God in the Bible, one that was made to Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12, now Adonai said to Avram, get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, away from your father's house, go to the land I'll show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who curses you. And by you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Yeshua instructs that his disciples are to teach everyone all that he has taught them. And I would add, not just whatever it is he taught them after his resurrection. Perhaps one of the most comforting things that Yeshua could ever have said that has brought peace to so many hurting and persecuted and ill and damaged believers are the final words of the book of Matthew. And remember, I will be with you always. Yes, even until the end of the age. Just as his father did not create us and then abandon us to work our lives out on our own, so Christ did not do a new work in us 
and then abandon us to work out our salvation on our own. This concludes our study of the Gospel of Matthew.